0: This is where we live, from Connecticut Public Radio, I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. 100 years ago this year, Prohibition went into effect, putting in place a ban on making, selling, and transporting liquor in the U.S. It would go on to be repealed nearly 14 years later. But how did the Prohibition movement inform drug policies in our country in later decades? We talk about that with Thomas Pegram, history professor at Loyola University in Maryland, and author of the forthcoming book Prohibition's Greatest Myths, the Distilled Truth About America's Anti-Alcohol Crusade. First, you've heard about the opioid epidemic in the United States, but is the country also facing an alcohol epidemic? A new study has found alcohol-related deaths between 1999 and 2017 have more than doubled. The number of men dying from alcohol still outpaces women, but researchers uncovered another surprising statistic when they analyzed death certificates during this time period. To tell us more, joining me now is Aaron White, Senior Scientific Advisor at the National Institute on Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism. Aaron, welcome to the show.
2: Oh, well, thank you. My pleasure.
0: Uh, I mentioned that uh, alcohol related deaths are up um, uh, uh, over the last uh, decade from 1999 to 2017. Uh, but when we think about uh, the rates of alcohol deaths among women, what did you find?
2: We found that, uh, just as you mentioned um, perfectly, the, the overall number of deaths in the United States uh, from alcohol um, is uh, accounted for by men. Men account for about 75 percent of the deaths. But the biggest increases over the last 20 years have been among women, uh, which is consistent with increases in drinking among women and increases in emergency department visits for alcohol and hospitalizations for alcohol among women, too.
0: Uh, when we look at the study, it's especially uh, high among uh, white women. Uh, what do researchers know about the factors that are leading to this increase in alcohol-related deaths, Aaron?
2: Well, I mean that is the—that's uh, a question that's yet to be answered. Um, there's lots of speculation. Uh, there are probably lots and lots of factors driving it. Um, we know that over the last century or so, I mean, since prohibition, there's been a general narrowing of the differences in alcohol use uh, and negative outcomes among men and women. This has been going on for you know at least a century in the United States. So in some ways, this is a continuation of that narrowing that we've been seeing. Um, certainly, there are other factors. People have speculated that um, as we're uh, doing our best to march toward equality, uh, we haven't um, removed some of the um, typical responsibilities women have held in society over the last 100 years. So for instance, there are more women uh, who are breadwinners in their home, but they're still also doing more of the domestic work and taking on a lot of that stress as well. So there's a chance that some of it is driven by increases in stress, uh, increases in the ability to uh, to afford alcohol. I mean, some of those factors are probably at play. Uh, but my guess is there's you know a whole list of things that are contributing. Mm.
0: And uh, when we look at uh, some of the maybe the social factors, is it uh, more acceptable uh, for women to drink today uh, than uh, past decades?
2: It certainly seems to be. And in fact, you can see it in the way that we advertise alcohol over the last hundred years. I'm not suggesting the ads are driving the problem, but they do reflect sort of where we are as a culture at that time. And you can see in the advertisements over the last hundred years that uh, ads for alcohol moved from men, men only to women serving men, to men and women drinking together to suddenly in the 70s, you see all these ads. It's just women drinking. Uh, and so, you know, there certainly does seem to be an increased uh, acceptance of that. Uh, and of course, there's a lot of discussion about uh, things like, you know, mommy juice and, you know, afternoon wine, et cetera. We don't know how widespread that really is, but all those things suggest that there has been a cultural shift in how we view alcohol use among women uh, to make it uh, not just more acceptable, but but actually more expected mm. among women.
0: Uh, When we talk about uh, advertising, uh, are there particular drinks that uh, people see uh, maybe that aren't as bad as, uh, say, hard liquor? I'm thinking about this craze now for hard seltzer.
2: Yeah. You know, I think over time um, there have been these – the emergence of, you know, types of beverages that are popular for a while – uh, you know, I remember growing up in the 80s and wine coolers were really popular. And um, so, you know, who knows how long this will stick around, if it'll be a permanent, um, you know, thing or if it's just a fad. Um, it's the, the important thing to to keep in mind is that the drug is always the same. Alcohol is alcohol. Uh, if you're getting a standard serving of alcohol, it doesn't matter if it comes from a beer, a glass of wine, a shot or a hard seltzer. You're still getting exposed to the same drug in the same amount. Um, the only thing that's gonna be different is the uh, you know, the the other ingredients and the number of calories. Uh but the drug stays the same all the time.
0: Uh, You're hearing on the phone with us, Aaron White, Senior Scientific Advisor at the National Institute on Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism, as we learn about uh, this recent uh, research that looked at death certificates from 1999 to 2017, finding that alcohol-related deaths are on the rise, uh, more than doubled in that time period um, across the U.S. You can join our conversation, find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Aaron, I wanted to talk more about, you know, physiologically how alcohol impacts women differently from men. Men.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, the you know that's an interesting story that's developed over the last you know twenty or so years of science, and uh, and it's not uh, a finished story yet. I mean, it seems like every year new findings come out to suggest that there are sometimes subtle differences in how alcohol affects women's bodies and men's bodies. Um, usually, it's in ways that make it uh, less healthy for women, um, but you know, not all the time. Uh, but yeah, for some reason, we we really don't understand why. Um, women seem to be more likely to develop certain harms from alcohol. For instance, um, once the liver gets inflamed uh, from drinking in women, it uh, progresses to full blown liver disease faster. Uh, the progression of alcohol use to alcohol use disorder seems to happen faster for women. Uh, women seem to be at an increased risk of well, certainly breast cancer from relatively small amounts of alcohol. Uh, we, For some reason, women tend to have memory blackouts um, more easily than, than men and even if you give alcohol uh, to somebody in an iv so you could perfectly control how much alcohol they get in their body women get worse hangovers than men at exactly the same amount of alcohol um, so part of it seems to be that uh, women um, absorb uh, alcohol differently than men so they end up with a higher peak uh, blood alcohol concentration after each drink um, a lot of that just has to do with the fact that women tend to store more fat in their bodies than men. So if a man and a woman of exactly the same size drank a shot, um, the woman has more body fat, typically that means less water in the body. So the alcohol goes into a smaller amount of water, you know, so your blood alcohol levels a little higher. Mm-hmm. Um, so it could be physiological differences like that that drive some of the health differences. But, um, you know, we're just beginning to really try to unpack it and figure out what's going on.
0: I'm also wondering uh, if if researchers have been able to look at uh, the rate of binge drinking, especially is this something that's more prevalent among women? And and what are we seeing among young people, Aaron?
2: Yeah, um, good question. So somebody looked at data from six big national surveys over the last 20 years and and reported that um, there's been an increase in alcohol use in the United States of about 10 percent over the last 20 years, but most of that is among women. Uh, men really haven't changed much at all, uh, either in binge drinking or in the number of men who drink. But the number of women who drink and the uh, percentage of those women who engage in binge drinking has gone up, uh, precipitously. So, uh, so yeah, so that, that's, uh, that certainly has to be a driver in, uh, why we're seeing these increases in harms like, like deaths and, and emergency department visits. There are just more women drinking and of those women who are drinking, more are engaging in, uh, binge drinking.
0: And with young people, what do we know in terms of? Is it yeah? Has it been with going young down?
2: people, we're seeing um, sort of the opposite pattern with young people. Uh, the with with adults, uh, there's been an increase in consumption. That's been bigger for women. Among young people, including uh, young adults, college age, and uh, other people in the workforce, there's actually been a decline in alcohol use uh, among teenagers. It's been a a big decline. It's been alcohol use and binge drinking have been cut in half over the last twenty years or so. Um, most of that decline has been for men. So, you know, women aren't really budging as much. Um, and so the gaps have, uh, have really narrowed there as well. Um, but the good news is it's going down. Um, the, the bad news is we don't know why it's not going down as much for girls. Um, and, you know, there's another part of the story, and that is that uh, we're seeing that our kids aren't um, socializing as much. And, you know, alcohol tends to be a, social, a socially used drug. Um, so they might just have fewer opportunities to drink. Um, our kids are more uh, depressed and anxious. Um, you know, the data tell us that they're more likely to drink alone when they drink. So it's not all good news. You know, our concern is that of those kids who are drinking, there might be more who are uh, going to be likely to drink in an unhealthy way to cope with stress, for instance. Um, so there's always different layers to these stories. But uh, regarding, you know, our kids, the good news is drinking is really plummeted. Uh, and there does seem to be an interest among uh, younger adults in, uh, in sobriety. And, and taking, you know, at least a month off, uh, you know, there's sober September and dry January. So it seems that we're seeing the beginnings of a real uh, cultural shift in how young people in our country view uh, their relationship with alcohol, which is you know, very promising. Mm-hmm.
0: I mentioned at the top of the show, uh, most Americans are aware about, of the uh, country's opioid epidemic. Uh, but when you compare um, alcohol-related deaths to opioid overdoses, is it still uh, worse, Aaron?
2: Oh, yes. I mean, uh, you know, for instance, in this study, just based on death certificates, uh, in 2017, there were about 73,000 Americans who died from alcohol-related causes uh, compared to about 47,600 opioid overdoses. Uh, But it's important to recognize that far more Americans drink alcohol than use opioids. Uh, So it tells you just how dangerous uh, opioids can be. Uh, that that one drug that's used by a much smaller portion of the population can cause, you know, that much harm. I mean, alcohol is our most widely used intoxicant. So it makes sense that you'd see more total harm related to alcohol than these other drugs. But the reality is, uh, you know, we we don't have a problem in this country with any specific drug per se. We have a problem with uh, people struggling to cope with their lives and losing hope for the future, etc. That's what's driving um, what are being called deaths of despair, and they involve lots of drugs. Uh, my guess is that, you know, if there were another drug that was more easily available than alcohol or opioids, that's what people would be using. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, that's a whole different story. Uh, people want to, to uh, uh, you know, to, to cope with their lives. And uh, if it's difficult, we, we just have a tendency to reach for substances like alcohol and opioids. Uh, mm-hmm. But there's not one specific drug um, that I would say is the problem. Uh, the problem is, you know, why people feel compelled to reach for them.
0: I want to bring into the discussion now Nancy Navaretti, Navaretta, Deputy Commissioner for the Connecticut Department of Mental Health and Addiction Services or DEMS. Uh, Nancy, welcome to the show. Good morning. Uh, so we've been talking about this research that Aaron and his colleagues uh, did, looking at alcohol related deaths uh, from 1999 to 2017. You know, how does DEMS respond when they see uh, uh, this uh, national study and the findings? Mm-hmm.
3: Let me just step back a little bit, just so your listeners understand the work that we do. Um, we are an agency that serves adults. So we serve adults over the age of 18 and we offer treatment and recovery supports to individuals with addiction and mental health issues. We also do a lot of prevention across the lifespan. Mm-hmm. So that's where some of our work may overlap with the discussion this morning is in mm-hmm. our prevention work. And so when you, the, when DEMA sees this study come out, I mean, what is the response? And,
0: and what do we know about what uh, Connecticut residents are facing?
3: Well, I agree with Dr. White that um, Basically, a drug is a drug is a drug, and our efforts are going to be similar. Um, and we have learned from um, Connecticut has done a great job in lower, lowering the rate of tobacco use with uh, young people. We've also um, mimicked the trends nationally that Dr. White spoke of where drinking, drinking has decreased, um, again, Mirroring the results that Dr. White mentioned, women or young girls do binge drink more than young boys in Connecticut. Um, Boys start drinking earlier. So, boys will start drinking as early as 11. For girls, it's 13, they may start experimenting with alcohol. Um, They quickly catch up, though. So, in high school, they're Perhaps exceeding what the boys are using, um, so it's a complex uh, question, and the the whys mm-hmm. are are still up in the air, mm-hmm. as Dr. White mentioned. Uh, DMS helps adults
0: eighteen and over. Uh, so when we think about uh, people struggling with substance abuse, uh, I guess starting with uh, alcohol, uh, you know, are there enough uh, treatment uh, programs to re- to help people that are that are struggling with alcohol
3: abuse? <laughs> We have over, uh, you know, beds are not. We like to say beds are not always the answer in patient treatment um, facilities. But we have over a thousand beds in the system in the adult system. Now, again, we're we're um, serving folks that are low income. Um, may be on Medicaid or unentitled. So it's a, it's not the whole population. It's a segment of the population. Mm-hmm. Um, we have a 1-800 number that will connect people directly to an open bed. We have a public-facing um, census tool that folks, parents, uh, young people can go on and look and see where across the state uh, there may be services available for them. Um, I think Part of what Dr. White alluded to is that young people, through the Connecticut School Health Survey, are still feeling like they're not getting the help that they need, which may increase their um, use of substances.
1: Mm.
0: Uh, Before we uh, go on to the rest of our show, uh, Aaron White, we talked a little bit about uh, it doesn't matter what type of alcohol you're drinking uh, when we think about the impact on uh, the human body, but some other myths uh, about alcohol that that you want to put to rest uh, before we let you go.
2: Oh, sure. (laughs) Well, thank you. And I also, um, you know, I appreciate all of Nancy's comments, and she reminded me that it is the case nationally right now more girls than boys are drinking by 10th grade and in college for the first time in recorded history, uh, and, and also young adults not in college, girls or young women are more likely to drink binge drink than boys. So we're really seeing a cultural shift here. Um, yeah, there, I mean, there are quite a few myths <laughs> about alcohol that, that, interestingly, some of them I believed myself until I learned uh, the opposite. So, for instance, it's a myth that over in Europe, uh, they've figured it out. And if they just let their kids drink, you know, they don't develop problems, et cetera. Uh, our teenagers drink less than teenagers throughout Europe. So it's, the solution is not lowering the drinking age or letting our kids drink at home. Um, also, there's nothing special about wine. Um, wine is not extra protective for your health or extra a boosting for your health. Um, again, it's it's just a different delivery system for uh, alcohol. So, and, and the other thing I would say is hangovers. We get a lot of questions this time of year about how to prevent hangovers. And I hate to tell you, the only way to prevent a hangover is to just not drink too much. Uh, everything else is just treating symptoms. There's really no way to prevent it or get rid of it other than time and uh, suffering. And so we those are a couple that come to mind. Yeah.
0: And we can't forget to mention that uh, no matter what you think, it doesn't help you sleep better.
2: <laughs> uh, well, that's the other thing, too. It, it actually it disrupts your sleep. Mm-hmm. It helps people fall asleep a little faster, so they sort of get tricked into thinking it helps sleep. But what it does is then fragments your sleep, and people tend to wake up earlier. And, of course, as we age, that's the last thing we want to be doing.
0: Well, I want to thank Aaron White, Senior Scientific Advisor at the National Institute on Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism, for joining us today to talk about this research that he and his uh, colleagues uh, undertook, again, looking at alcohol-related deaths um, over the last a decade from 1999 to 2017. Aaron, we appreciate you coming on. Thank you.
2: Oh, my pleasure. Thank you so much.
0: This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nopithanchel. Also with me in studio is Nancy Navarretta, a deputy commissioner for the Connecticut Department of Mental Health and Addiction Services, or DEMIS. She's going to stick around as we continue to talk about, again, uh, substance abuse in our country, uh, recovery programs, but also we're taking a look back, uh, this next segment, at uh, prohibition and the impact of that national movement uh, on drug policy. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Earlier, we learned about some of the reasons why the rate of alcohol-related deaths have risen in the U.S. in the last two decades. This past January marked 100 years since Prohibition went into effect. How did this national law affect addiction and inform subsequent drug policy in the U.S.? Thomas Pegram, professor of history at Loyola University in Maryland. He's the author of Battling Demon Rum, The Struggle for a Dry America, 1800 to 1933. Also a contributing author to a book uh, about to come out in April called Prohibition's Greatest Myths, The Distilled Truth About America's Anti-Alcohol Crusade. Uh, Tom, welcome to our show.
4: Yeah. Happy to be here.
0: Uh, I mentioned that uh, today is the anniversary of when Prohibition actually went into effect. Uh, Give us a little history lesson in terms of uh, when uh, the country um, prohibited the sale of alcohol and why did it take a year to implement?
4: Well, it took a... Actually, the national constitutional prohibition was the endpoint of 100 years of temperance and then prohibition activism, first emphasizing... Uh, individual self-control, then turning to uh, laws. Connecticut itself had a prohibition law in the 1850s, uh, uh, which then went away. Uh, The national prohibition movement built out of the progressive era, so there's a reform element, there's a public health element, there's concern about working-class families among industrialists, some industrialists. There's uh, a concern about efficiency of workers. Workers used to traditionally drink on the job. Uh, uh, Women, uh, middle-class women, are supporters of prohibition, although not all of them are. Uh, But it's also a nativist movement and a coercive movement. Uh, 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 It's a religious movement. The Anti-Saloon League, which was the major lobbying organization that pushed for a political solution of the liquor problem in the United States uh, uh, saw itself as the church in action against the saloon from a Protestant viewpoint. Mm. So it's a long step. The year lag between the enactment of prohibition and its uh, implementation was really to allow uh, the liquor industry a year to uh, conclude its business uh, uh, to get a little lead time into uh, the enforcement.
0: Uh, so, in terms of the implementation, that was the Volstead Act in 1920.
4: Right, the Volstead Act. There are two. There are two different parts. the The 18th Amendment is pretty general in its um, uh, approach, eliminating uh, the uh, manufacture for the manufacture, of transportation for sale, sell, selling, or importation of intoxicating liquor. But it didn't. It, it didn't uh, define what was intoxicating. The Volstead Act did that, and it actually took a lot of people by surprise. Uh, brewers thought that Prohibition was for whiskey. Uh, they considered their drink to be a healthy drink. Uh, and at, at, at the very worst, they thought that maybe 3% beer, which was what you had during World War I when there was a restriction on cereals, uh, that that would be uh, uh, the, the national standard. Instead, the Volstead Act adopted a very harsh um, 0. 0.05% alcohol content made for an intoxicating liquor. That, that was a, uh, a, a tax standard. It wasn't one based on science, but it essentially eliminated all alcoholic beverages. Mm.
0: And so before the the Volstead Act, uh, there were already plenty of places in this country that had actually banned drinking because of the temperance movement and others?
4: Yeah. Much, much of the country uh, was under state prohibition laws. One reason they pushed for national prohibition was uh, the Northeast was holding out and in order to keep alcohol out of dry states. They, they went for that. But there, actually, a lot of the emphasis was at removing the supply um, and uh, attacking the liquor industry, either saloons or uh, distillers. They were the target more than individual drinkers. A lot of states that had state prohibition laws had personal use exemptions. You could import... Uh, up to a quart a month. In some cases, pretty large amounts of alcohol for personal use. Uh, that all disappeared with national prohibition and the Fullstead Act. Mm.
0: Uh, Tom, I was wondering if you could go uh, more into detail. Uh, again, before uh, prohibition was passed, you know how serious of an issue was uh, alcoholism uh, in the United States in terms of of consumption.
4: It was a massive issue. Uh, uh, especially in the nineteenth century in the nineteenth century when the united states was industrializing first of all there are no safe liquids to drink um, uh... water supplies are not really safe milk can't be um, uh, uh... kept fresh uh... distilled liquor was really the, the safest thing to to drink um, and that meant americans drank an awful lot that's why you first had these temperance movements in the nineteenth century going into the twentieth century Alcohol consumption became tied into a cultural war, as uh, more and more immigration from Eastern and Southern Europe, um, wine-drinking countries, uh, uh, distilled liquor-drinking countries, uh, countries with the tradition of the continental Sunday, where you would go to a beer garden with your family on the on the weekend, rather than spending the day at church or in contemplation, that tied into it. Um, you know, there are automobiles. Uh, there's moving machinery. Uh, there are a lot of issues that made drinking a, a, a big problem.
0: Uh, you're hearing uh, Tom Pegram again, professor of history at Loyola University in Maryland, uh, author of uh, a couple of books, one forthcoming called "Prohibition's Greatest Myth: The Distilled Truth About America's Anti-Alcohol Crusade." Uh, I wanted to ask, uh, uh, since we we heard about the lead up uh, to prohibition, uh, Tom, uh, once it was implemented, uh, talk a little bit about um, you know its impact, uh, short term and long term.
4: Okay uh short-term impact was there was an attempt by the country by and large to um accept the law uh uh but over time there was greater and greater resistance it was a big it was a big step to uh, defy a constitutional amendment um Connecticut for instance none of the representatives from Connecticut voted to um passed the Prohibition Amendment, Connecticut didn't ratify the 18th Amendment, but once it became law by 1921, uh, Connecticut passed a um, uh, what, what was called by the anti saloon League, a fair enforcement law. So, so there were attempts to enforce. The problem was there wasn't a real mechanism to make enforcement uh, effective and corruption-free, uh, partly because... There was a split between a, a vision of federal enforcement that could be done on the cheap, claimed the Anti Saloon League, and state enforcement. This is the conc- concurrent enforcement uh... component of the 18th Amendment, which meant you had to have states and federal officials working hand in hand. There was never a big enough budget to enforce the law everywhere, uh... and many states made minimal attempts to, to enforce. Some did, uh, but over time, beginning with New York in 1924, some states began to repeal their enforcement statute, saying that the law uh, was leading to a, a, a kind of defiance of law and, and a kind of moral degradation because the law could not be enforced. So there was some enforcement, Unfortunately, the harshest enforcement was against marginal groups in 1920s society: uh, uh, immigrants, uh, African American communities. Uh, prohibition was real for, for for some Americans. They really did uh, 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 feel the brunt of it. In other cases, if you were wealthy enough, uh, well, first of all, you could, if you had legally purchased pre-prohibition alcohol, you could drink it in your home. And you could serve bona fide guests. You couldn't sell it. You couldn't move it around. But uh, so so there were class dimensions to the um, reform that also led to controversy.
0: Uh, you mentioned uh, that uh, prohibition disproportionately impacted immigrants and people of color. Uh, can you talk more about that? I understand the KKK was even involved in in this movement.
4: Yes, the Klan was uh, actively involved in prohibition enforcement in some places. Uh, the Klan in the 1920s was a mass movement. Uh, it, it was one that claimed that, that native-born white Protestant Americans were the authentic Americans, and they somehow had some genetic predisposition for democracy that other people did not have. Uh, and so immigrants, Catholics non whites uh... uh suspicion in their eyes those were also the groups that were most uh uh, uh... uh... suspicious and skeptical toward prohibition and what happened in some communities is that members of the clan arguing that uh... if the law is not being enforced that leads to a a um, uh... A, a, a drop in the effectiveness of democracy they essentially um, volunteered to act as constables in prohibition enforcement for cash-strapped state and local authorities. In Indiana, there was a, uh, an old uh, 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 anti-horse thief law that allowed um, uh, private citizens to be deputized and hundreds of Klansmen across the state were deputized under the Horse Thief Detective Association. Uh, uh, some of them were issued firearms, badges, and they went out and and uh, took part in Prohibition raids.
0: And this uh, also, Prohibition uh, started uh, this incarceration, uh, more prisons uh, that were developed?
4: Yeah, that's, that, that's a major um, uh, development out of the Prohibition era. Uh, there's so many arrests uh, under the prohibition laws, which get stronger over time. In 1928, 1929, when when Hoover comes in as president, there's actually a renewed attempt to enforce the law, and there are harsher incarceration laws. And a lot of national prisons are are built during this period. Uh, There's also a, a, a rise in crime in the early part of the 1920s. It's not totally tied to prohibition. It begins to dip again after 1925. But that led to and after the factory action and the building of more prisons. And uh, it also kind of enshrined a coercive, punitive approach to regulation rather than one that emphasized education. And that had been a split in the Anti Saloon League. There was one branch that said, we don't care about the next election, we care about the next generation. People should learn not to depend on alcohol, and we should uh, help. Help them to learn that there were others that wanted quick results and wanted to rely on the law and on harsh laws, and that side tended to win out.
0: Uh, eventually, uh, prohibition was repealed nearly 14 years later. When we look at uh, policies in our country in the decades uh, subsequent decades after, in terms of uh, the war on drugs, uh, you know, was this public policy approach uh, was it um, influenced by uh, the prohibition movement, Tom?
4: Uh, Yes, uh, although with some differences. Um, uh, One of the big differences was the alcohol industry, liquor manufacturers are dead set against prohibition, but some of the important drug laws and enforcement was actually supported by pharmaceutical companies and others who manufactured some legal drugs and they wanted to maintain control of over, the, over them but in other ways i mean one of the branches of the prohibition unit which was the federal enforcement arm uh... uh did narcotic uh, uh... enforcement another thing that uh... they shared was that marginalized communities and working-class communities tended to be targeted um, uh... more fiercely uh... uh a lot of uh, uh... opiates originally were used by middle-class americans prescribed by doctors uh... just like uh... middle-class women um, uh... drank alcohol unknowingly and with 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 various um, uh... health potions like lydia pinkham's vegetable compound which mm-hmm. Uh, contained an enormous amount of alcohol It's only when you started to spread to the streets to immigrant communities uh, uh, with uh, there's no concern about marijuana until uh, uh, Mexican immigrants are coming into the United States in the Southwest and they're concerned there's the uh, cocaine panic in the 19 teens and 1920s so you start to get drug regulation about the same time after prohibition falls apart a lot of the same personnel go into drug enforcement, and the model is the punitive, uh, 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 coercive one using law and punishment rather than one that emphasizes uh, education and an attempt to uh, lower demand.
0: Uh, you mentioned how uh, Prohibition once implemented, uh, impacted uh, immigrants and people of cover, uh, color. Uh, you know, Years later, uh, in the 70s and 80s, seeing policy come out that uh, disproportionately impacted uh, people of color and, and mass incarceration rates uh, as well.
4: Yes, I, I think there's a, there's a clear connection. I don't think a lot of these advocates of Prohibition really envision that, but the nature of the reform and the problems of enforcement that it encountered in the context of American culture, politics, and American prejudices uh, allowed that to happen. Uh, it's, it's, it's much more intentional, I think, in the um, war on drugs.
0: Uh, you've been hearing Tom Pegram, professor of history at Loyola University in Maryland. Uh, in studio with me is Nancy Navaretta, deputy commissioner for the Connecticut Department of Mental Health and Addiction Services. Uh, Nancy, uh, we're hearing about uh, the punitive approach uh, that was accepted, uh, especially after a prohibition. Um, I'm just wondering if you can talk about how public policy is changing now, specifically in Connecticut, uh, where there's a lot of emphasis now on second chances and decriminalizing certain amounts of, of marijuana because of the the ripple effects of certain people that uh, were definitely um, impacted much greater than others because of these policies.
3: But certainly, some of the lessons learned um, are that the punitive uh, methods, law enforcement, does some, we can't arrest our way out of this problem. It is not something we can arrest our way out of. There isn't the type of treatment necessarily available to people that are involved in criminal justice system. And we want to um, do whatever we can to strengthen engagement. So no matter where somebody is on the continuum, um, we can bring them into our system and get them the the kind of help that they need. Um, So there's been a lot of effort in jail diversion, um, re-entry, connection of people leaving the criminal justice system to our community services.
0: I mentioned uh, the opioid epidemic. Uh, We've seen uh, policymakers look at this as a medical or trying to treat addiction as a medical problem, uh, not a moral one. But uh, the stigma still exists Uh, Mm that people think that with the flick of a flip of a switch, that people can just stop taking uh,
3: uh, or abusing these drugs, and it's Mm -hmm. not that easy. It is not that easy. It's very complex, Um, and there are different paths to recovery for different people. For some people. Medication is helpful, depending on the drug that they're uh, using or misusing. Um, For other people, self-help is extremely effective. Um, Outpatient therapies, auricular acupuncture, whole-person therapies, alternative therapies. Uh, So there's an array of services, inpatient and and outpatient, out there for people.
0: Uh, You know, some would argue that all drugs in the country should be legalized, but we know alcohol is legal over Mm -hmm. 21. It's still a growing cause of death in this country. So how should this issue be approached, uh, you know, overall in terms of uh, making sure that people, um, if they're struggling with substance abuse, that uh, they can get
3: help? Well, one thing I would say is that the longer that we can delay a young person from using substances, the... Less likely they are to develop an addiction disorder. So, for example, if a young person starts drinking before the age of 15, they're six times more likely to develop alcohol um, dependence or misuse later in life than those who begin drinking after 21.
0: I'm probably uh, asking you this too late in the conversation, but I'm going to throw it in anyway. Uh, Now with the uh, marijuana legalization uh, conversation happening, how does that complicate uh, efforts
3: uh, to postpone use among young people and others? I think we have to do our job um, in terms of prevention. We can apply some of the same public health principles that we have successfully applied to Alcohol use in teens and smoking in teens. Connecticut's rate of uh, smoking in teens is well below the national average. Um, adults, actually, in Connecticut smoke less than the national average as well. We have done such a, a good job with uh, prevention in that area, and I imagine we would need to continue those efforts. Mm-hmm.
0: We're going to head to break. I want to thank Tom Pegram for joining us again, professor of history at Loyola University and contributing author to this forthcoming book, Prohibition's Greatest Myths, The Distilled Truth About America's Anti-Alcohol Crusade, that book coming out in April. Uh, Tom, thanks for joining us today.
4: Well, thank you. Good conversation.
0: Thank you. And Nancy's going to stay with us again. Nancy Navarrete, Deputy Commissioner for the Connecticut Department of Mental Health and Addiction Services. We're going to expand this conversation about uh, recovery uh, programs in the state of Connecticut. We're going to hear about uh, the growing number of hospitals using what's called recovery coaches. You can join us, too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchil. Now, where we live has talked about the importance of recovery coaches several months ago. We focused on the city of New London, which has partnered with first responders there to help connect residents to substance abuse treatment programs. Now, recovery coaches also are working out of emergency departments in the state. Connecticut Public Radio's Nicole Leonard has reported on efforts by the nonprofit Connecticut Community for Addiction Recovery. Uh, Nicole joins us now in studio. Thanks for coming
1: back on the show, Nicole. Yeah, I'm happy. happy to be here.
0: Uh, So tell us about recovery coaches. Why are they growing and why are they uh, being placed in hospitals?
1: Yeah, recovery coaches, um, they're not meant to duplicate services that are provided by doctors or psychologists or physicians. Um, They really are there to help support uh, people who are struggling, sometimes in the most traumatic points of their active addiction. Um, The particular recovery coaches that um, we focused on recently are ones that work in emergency departments. So they may be seeing people who are coming in with um, after an overdose. They may be seeing people who just went to the hospital because they recognize they have a substance use disorder, but they don't know where to go for help. So these people are really there to help support that person, their family members, and help explain to them maybe what the medical personnel is telling them, um, as well as connect them with some of the uh, addiction prevention or treatment treatment services in the community. Mm-hmm. So they're really a, an important link that are working with other medical staff in the emergency departments to help support people who are struggling with uh, addictions to drugs or alcohol or other things.
0: Uh, you uh, met a resident, uh, I believe her name is Deb Chuax, who uh, is one of the residents that's been paired up with a recovery coach. Can
1: you tell us a little bit about her? Yeah, Deb. Um Deb was, uh, she recognized that she was struggling with a substance use disorder, um, and, and it wasn't opioids. So a lot of, um, even though there's a lot of focus on the opioid epidemic, um, there are still people, as we know through this entire segment, that, you know, people are still struggling with alcohol and other drugs. So um, she recognized she had a problem, um, but she was, she was afraid to tell family and friends. She really didn't tell anybody about it. And so she went to a hospital um, for help, and that's when she got connected to a recovery coach.
0: Mm. Uh, You alluded to uh, her. she didn't want her family to know about uh, her trying to get help for addiction. Let's hear what she told you.
3: Because the stigma is so powerful, because that's why we stay hidden and we don't get help, and it gets worse and worse, uh, wherever we find that is a gift and it's helpful. And so a whole profession, a whole position devoted to that can do a great deal of good.
0: You also uh, talked with Michael Serrano, who uh, was her recovery coach. Talk about why that was such a powerful uh, partnership, because when we talk about stigma, he knew exactly what she was going through.
1: Yeah, a lot of uh, the, the unique thing about recovery coaches is that a lot, if most of them, have, are in recovery themselves. So they've directly experienced uh, a substance, uh, substance use disorder. They are in recovery, which is a, is a lifelong thing. You never, uh, you're always in recovery and you're always working toward recovery. So Michael was able to connect with Deb in a way that she didn't feel she was able to connect with maybe doctors and other medical personnel that were trying to help her. They were doing their jobs. Um, but it was really when she met Michael that they were, she said, okay, here's somebody who actually understands what I'm going Going through, who won't judge me. Um, And he was there to help her um, navigate this very scary time Mm -hmm. uh, in her life.
0: And how long do these recovery coaches work with individuals?
1: So a lot of them, they meet with uh, patients in the emergency department. That's really their first uh, point of contact. And sometimes people right out of the emergency department, they can help connect them directly with maybe that person wants to go straight into detox. Maybe that person wants to go into outpatient um, uh, treatment. Uh, Sometimes, though, it's really just connecting, making sure they have their contact information. And then they follow the recovery coaches, follow up with that patient the next day, the day after that, they'll call them every day sometimes to to help keep that connection. And so, um, this for sometimes they will stay in connection with uh, these patients for long periods of time. And uh, Michael and Deb met back in 2018, and they are still connected, and they're both they're both in recovery.
0: Wow. Uh, Nancy Navarrete is with us, Deputy Commissioner for the Connecticut Department of Mental Health and Addiction Services. I understand that this recovery coach program is one of the initiatives from DEMAS. Uh, can you talk more about, um, you know, how many recovery coaches there are in, in Connecticut
3: and, you know, some of the outcomes you've been seeing? Well, right now there are recovery coaches in 19 hospitals across the state, which is very significant. We have recovery coaches in many levels of care. So um, in our methadone clinics, we have recovery coaches. We have recovery coaches that are women, so they um, can establish a unique connection with our women pregnant and parenting who are in recovery that's a special population and it's just really helpful to be able to look someone in the eye that has been through the same thing or a similar experience as you have and I think it's just a a comforting and you had used the word partnership it's a partnership and a relationship um, that can really help a person find their path I wanted to take a quick call Keith has a question Keith
0: go
4: ahead uh, hi, thank you for taking my call. Uh, so my question is for the panel. I have a friend who's struggling with alcohol addiction, and he's in his early 20s. And we, I've been trying to help him to provide, like, a mental support and, like, support group through friends. But... He's really struggling. He had like two DUIs, and we're just all like really worried. So, if a panel can suggest any resource or any anything like that, that would be helpful.
3: Thank uh, you. And uh, Nancy, sure. Um, so, our website. If you um, look for Connecticut Demus, there are uh, many resources there. We have a one eight hundred number. So one eight hundred five six three. Four zero eight six, and we would be very happy to connect you with services through our one eight hundred number. We also have a Live Loud campaign, um, and through that campaign, it's it's targeted on opioids, but it will link you to to some of the services in our system.
0: And uh, just to clarify for for Keith, who's calling, if they want to look at the website, what is it? ct.gov slash. Yes,
3: if you just if you just put in your browser, Connecticut Demas, um, you will be taken right to it. And DM is spelled D-M-H-A-S A-S, for Keith. Correct. Okay. Correct. Uh, before we run out of
0: time, I understand that uh, there's efforts to expand uh, this recovery coach program um, also to help people in the Department of Corrections. Uh, I wanted to highlight this report from Connecticut Mirror's Kellen Lyons, who uh, found that former inmates now account for more than half of all drug mm-hmm. overdose deaths in Connecticut. So how soon will that be helping people um, out of prison,
3: Nancy? So it's really important, you know, as you said, that's, a, that's that's a uh, statistic that is quite frightening. Um, what happens is people uh, establish some time without substances in their system when they're incarcerated and then upon release they are not connected. they may not be connected to services and that is a key interval. So if we have these recovery coaches connect people directly from discharge to the next, level of care. So a community provider, be it a a physician or a counselor or um, a person in recovery, then I think we're going to start seeing success and Mm -hmm. turn those numbers around. So that will be up and running soon. And so the the funding
0: for this program out of uh, Demus, your department, uh, not in jeopardy when we think about
3: the next legislative session and and budget cuts? So this is, these are federal dollars and um, they go through September of this year. And we are hoping that we will get a, another, yet another year, a third year of what's called SOAR, state opiate response uh, dollars. And it, it's looking good that that will happen. Well, I want to thank again Nancy Navaretta for joining
0: us, Deputy Commissioner for the Connecticut Department of Mental Health and Addiction Services, or DEMAS, D M H A S is the acronym. Nancy, thanks for joining us today. Thank you so much. Thank you
3: for having this conversation.
0: Also with us, Nicole Leonard, uh, Connecticut Public Radio's healthcare reporter. Uh, Nicole, we're going to uh, link to your story at slash where we live. Also, tweet it out uh, uh, at where we live. We thank you for coming in. Thanks for having me. Uh, today's show produced by Carmen Baskoff. Our technical producer is Kion Wolf. Learn more about the show. Just download Where We Live on your favorite podcast app. And if you like us, uh, give us a review. I'm Lucy Doppithanchel. As always, thanks for listening. Have a great weekend.